0: another podcast from the quarantinedom of only maryland uh you know we're sitting here safely farther than six feet apart and uh i gotta ask frank how are you feeling in the coronavirus?
1: i'm feeling good um i didn't realize that we were actually six feet apart until you you just mentioned it so uh you know it's good that that the listeners know that we are we are in fact taking this as seriously as humanly possible uh, one of us maybe more so than the other But uh, you know, it is what it is.
0: It is entirely possible that Frank is taking the utmost precautions at the moment, um, but I'm sure he will detail that more to you later. Um, But at the moment, yes, while uh, we are physically farther than six feet apart, you know our connection and our analysis is never far from you. Let's start that off with, of course, uh, us making sure that any people living in the LA area are warned that a reckless man uh, former to the D.C. area, uh, is driving recklessly on the streets. And that man, of course, is Nick Young, who almost killed uh, JaVale McGee, starting center for the Los Angeles Lakers, earlier today in L.A., stating, quote, in a tweet, I almost killed JaVale McGee just now. What are the odds we almost hit each other driving? I'm ready to cuss someone out in full road rage mode. He rolled out his window. It's JaVale, man. What the fuck? We just started laughing. Damn, I wish he would have hit me. I need some cash. Nick Young, I feel that you need some cash, but, uh,
1: you know. The fact that these two individuals who obviously have, have a storied past together. Um, two of the maybe goofiest slash boneheaded NBA players in the past decade are in quite some time. Um, I just can't imagine what that interaction was like. And, you know, I'd be curious to know how the crash actually happened. You know, was it was it at an intersection or or, you know, who was really at fault? Because Nick Young made it seem like he was at fault, but at the same time, you know, car accidents are tricky and and they can go both ways and you know, there's no betting implications on this, but if there were wrote what do you think some lines would be on a Nick young, JaVale McKee car crash
0: Um, over under uh, like two and a half, I would say a number of autographs, I've always wondered about that whenever, you know, if a celebrity does something terrible on the road, if people come to flock towards them and try and get autographs still, if they've just, like, hit someone. Mm. So, between Nick Young and JaVale McGee, you know, two NBA champions, they both played together on the 2018 uh, Warriors, uh, you know, they're they're celebrities. And in LA, you got that celebrity culture going on, it, it, I would say autographs. Would
1: be- what, what do you think about uh, who, which one of them would ask for the other's insurance information first?
0: Oh, well, easy question, right? Nick Young is saying it he is out of work at the moment, whereas JaVale McGee is the starting center for a potential NBA champion. I think that's easily Nick Young will definitely try to flee some money out of JaVale McGee.
1: Yeah, for, for sure. I agree. I'd probably say it's like a minus 250, somewhere around that range. And uh, I'm
0: taking it. I'm taking minus two minus 250 on Nick Young. But uh, what another thing we might be betting on would be where they're going. Now, personally, my thoughts, and according to a report from the Atlantic earlier this week, is that players have actually been trying to have a lot of team practices going on with like a certain amount. And when I, hear, when I heard that originally, the first player I thought it was, of course, LeBron James, who undoubtedly is sitting somewhere in an L.A. underground gym with uh, Frank Vogel at his side, Anthony Davis, Rajon Rondo, and hopefully JaVale McGee was there to practice with uh, the starting team. And I would not be surprised if he'd be included. And maybe they're just preparing for, thank God, May 8th, the NBA says players can finally return to practice facilities. Not too far from now. uh, We will be able to see them going back to practice, which is a great sign for the NBA possibly coming back. Um, There are a few issues, of course, coming with that where we have seen that they're pushing back the draft lottery, which makes sense. Obviously, the NBA has not announced yet that the season will resume with the playoffs or will resume with regular season. And if there's still regular season games to be played, then obviously the standings are still uh, ready to be changed. And therefore, the lottery will have to be coerced i don't know about your thoughts frank i think that if the regular season uh, were to return would be a very poor idea because not only then do you have to play a few more regular season games you also then have to play the entirety of the playoffs if the nba were to resume i can only imagine that it would come back in only playoff form and so i would kind of be surprised if the lottery really gets affected that much but what do you think that adam silver and the nba should really be doing to handle
1: um potential comeback overall i trust adam silver I trust the NBA in general to make the to ultimately make a smart, measured decision. If it was up to me, I would say I mean you have to come back this season. You can't just cancel this season altogether because all of these players across the league, they want to play. And there's also some other implications at hand like you know, the owners and and the general managers and and coaches, they they want the season to return in some fashion. And I agree with you that I don't think it's even I don't think it's reasonable or in the cards to just pick up where the regular season left off because I just don't think you have the time to do that anymore. Because even if you come back and just have a postseason, you just start with a postseason bracket. You're looking at a timeline where that would probably conclude towards the end of the summer, and then that's probably going to push the start of the next NBA season for 2020-2021 that season's not going to start until December, right around Christmas. And then at that point, really, that's just going to become the new normal, I think. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that if the NBA season every year started in December and then went into the end of the summer, I mean, I think that's that's not a bad thing at all. I mean, they won't be competing necessarily um, for viewership and, you know, TV rights and stuff like that with uh, with the NFL if they were to follow that kind of format. Um, So I don't know. I mean, there is no like there's technically no right answer, um, so to speak, but it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds uh, in the coming weeks and months.
0: Yeah, that schedule change definitely is the most interesting uh, effect to me, I think, because the NBA has a lot of congestion, especially at the beginning, competing with the NFL. And at the end, even during their finals, is usually during the same weeks that the NHL finals is, which obviously isn't a big competition for viewership, but still does detract from the numbers. So if they start <laughs> in July when they really don't have as much competition, like they're not even competing with March Madness at that point. At end, like for the end of the regular season. So I think the NBA viewership would go high. And so that'd be very interesting to see. Um, though the other summer sport they would officially be competing with would of course be baseball, uh, which has been incredibly optimistic uh, this week over their possibility of return in which the uh, MLB office has officially said that they're start planning to return in j- late June with an absolute guarantee that they'll be back with June 2nd, which I mean is incredible. Uh, they're promising that they'll be playing 100 games at least uh, playing in a three-divisional setup with one East, Central, and West division, uh, without NL or AL implications for all of those to be making the playoffs. So the MLB seems a little bit more prepared and has a plan in place. But you know, a shortened baseball season with already congested with an already incredible amount of games that they're playing—will it really be the same? Do you think is baseball handling this the right way?
1: Well, I think for the MLB. It- this whole situation has been maybe a little bit easier just because the impact of the virus didn't necessarily coincide. It's not like they were in the middle of a season and this happened, you know, they, they had, they've had some time to prepare and and really take a measured response to this. So a lot of people might think that maybe they're rushing it a little bit coming back this early, but I don't necessarily think so. I think that you know, I don't. I think a June a return in June is is definitely reasonable. You know, so long as they're following the the proper safety precautions and and public health measures, I, I think they can reasonably do that and still still carry out games. Especially if you know, like you mentioned, they're not planning to have any fans in attendance at any of these games. Um, so if you're doing that, then. I mean, the only thing you have to worry about is is the players and the team staff and and all that. And between that, I mean, I don't think they would be violating any sort of guidelines or or anything of that nature. So what's, what's going to be interesting to me is how they're going to handle it location wise, because, you know, across the country, different states are in different situations. You know, some states are being impacted by the virus more than others. And the lockdown and stay-at-home orders are more intense in some areas than, than it is in others. So I think they may have to just pick a few locations and just play there and then just keep teams isolated throughout the week, maybe something like that. And I think, you know, whatever the MLB decides to do, it wouldn't be surprising to see the NBA kind of, you know, adopt a similar policy or kind of just examine what they do and measure the effectiveness and then go from there in other leagues as well.
0: Yeah. And of course, the league that would then be imparted with the most knowledge would be the NFL, which doesn't start until September this year, with opening day planned to be September 13th, well into the future. And the NFL seems very hopeful that maybe with a shortened preseason, their regular season will be unhitched by coronavirus. Maybe, of course, with less fans or no fans at all in the stadiums, which would be a big loss financially to the NFL. The NFL will still have their season go on, luckily. But one of the things we will continue to look for in the NFL is that brand new class of rookies that we've spent oh so much time talking about. We'll start some odds. It's been a while, Frank. You know, we we do enjoy talking about odds every once in a while.
1: No way. This is a betting podcast.
0: We make this joke every week, but we do really forget after we spend so much time talking about asinine things like Nick Young hitting Javale McGee on the streets of LA. Let's, let's start it with our favorite position, the wide receiver. I always like starting with Judy because he's my favorite player, but we'll start with Ruggs for you. Uh, 800 yards this season. We'll be doing mostly yards because a lot of our numbers we managed to get from our inside source, um, uh, thanks to Mr. Frank Plyko and his... Uh, he who his, shall not be named. <laughs> uh, his network of of contacts has managed to get us this these sources. And so, like I said, we're starting with Ruggs here at an over-under of 800 yards. Frank, take it away.
1: Uh, I think this is an interesting number uh, for a number of reasons, but all things considered, I would be inclined to take the over on this number. And maybe I'm being a little bit biased, because obviously uh, listeners of this podcast know that I am a, a fairly big fan of Henry Ruggs as a player. But looking at this number of 800, the Raiders have a hole at receiver. And they addressed it in the draft, not just as Ruggs, but with a few other players, Um, Brian Edwards in the third round, uh, to be more specific. But the only other receivers on their roster, they have players like Tyra Williams and Hunter Renfro. But between those two guys and then the addition of Brian Edwards, I still think Ruggs is going to have a sizable enough target share. And his ability to make big plays in the passing game, like I can see him having multiple 100-yard receiving games. And then, you know, maybe he's a little bit inconsistent where he'll have a hundred yards one game and then kind of a 25 to 45 receiving yard game uh, mixed in between. But I think the big plays will be enough throughout the season. And I ultimately think I can see him having somewhere between, you know, maybe 850 to, to 950 receiving yards and, and potentially even approaching a thousand if he's able to play all 16 games and, and everything goes according to plan. But um 800 is, is a fairly big number, but I like the over slightly.
0: So I'm inclined here to agree with you, and I'm going pretty much off past data from last year. Um, so three receivers broke over 500 yards for the writers uh, last year. And that, of course, was the men you mentioned, Hunter Renfro and Tyrell Williams, and their tight end, Darren Waller. Now, Waller had 1,145 receiving yards, well above the 651 and 605 that Renfro and Williams had, respectively. Uh, But because those numbers are, you know, only 200 yards away, and I think that a guy like Henry Ruggs, who can really take the top off and alleviate the stress that comes with the necessary, like, tight end blanket that Derek Carr has been needing so much, I think any time that your tight end gets 1,100 yards in a season, it really just shows that your quarterback has been pressured a lot and the necessary, the need for him to throw 90 times to Darren Waller is insane. But Ruggs presents the exact opposite, where Derek Carr can just sling it every once in a while, and Ruggs will go get it, and on those big guard plays, it will really help him add up to 800, so I'm, I'm with you there, and 800 over. Um, let's go for two of the smaller number guys than the 800. We have Jalen Rager at 700, who I've already spoken of my displeasure towards, and uh, LSU's Justin Jefferson, 750, and I don't mean LSU's. Of course, I mean the Vikings.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll start here with Rager, who, who I know we kind of have a difference of opinion on, and... I do want to take the over of 700 because I do like Rager a lot as a player, but I'm just not too convinced that he's going to be able to hit this number. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he would have a bad season by any stretch of the imagination, because I don't think expectations for him are that high anyways coming in. But when you look at the Eagles receiving core, obviously there's... Last year, the Eagles did have one of the most poor-some receiving cores in the league. but a lot of that had to do with injuries, and sure, players like Deshaun Jackson and Alshon Jeffrey are injury prone, but if I think that it's reasonable to assume that the Eagles will get at least a few more games out of both of those players, and if that does happen, then you already have Zach Ertz, and then you have Jeffrey and Deshaun Jackson. Between those players, then you throw someone like Rager in the mix, who, like Rugs, is a big play threat, but he's not nearly as refined as an overall receiver. And he also figures to play a role on special teams as a punt returner and kick returner where he's outstanding and terrific in that aspect. But if he's playing a lot of special team snaps, then, you know, how how many snaps is he actually going to be taking at receiver? And I do think he's going to be a factor in the passing game for sure. But I can see somewhere between 600 to 650 as being more likely than 700. However, if he does go over 700, I will not be surprised at all. Because uh, I do believe in him as a player a lot.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's just not really sold on him being high enough on that totem pole for Wentz, or I guess Hurts, if he gets in there. But Zach Ertz, Dallas Godert, Miles Sanders, Alshon Jeffrey, Nelson Aguilar all strike me as better players with better rapport with the quarterback already, so... I think he's not gonna be able to reach into that higher echelon that he's going to need to, to get seven hundred yards. I mean it's a it's a tough scene with only one player on the Eagles breaking seven hundred last year, that being the Star Titans Zekert's. They're not a team that really airs the ball out, and if they do, it's really gonna to go to Alshon Jeffrey. And to take that away from Jeffrey, I think is gonna be a big hurdle for Rager, which I'm not sure he can match up with. If he proves me wrong, like you said, you know, seven hundred would be entirely attainable but i don't think he breaks that plane i don't think he beats jeffrey for the spot of the guy who goes deep in the eagle offense that X position, and that right. that's what i really think the unders it's much safer bet here
1: well you know here's the unknown i will say or the wild card so to speak there is rumors that the eagles have potentially been shopping alshon jeffrey on the trade market so you know if for some reason they were to trade a player like jeffrey who's been solid, but maybe not necessarily lived up to expectations in Philadelphia, uh, in large part due to injuries, like I mentioned. If for some reason they were able to find a trade partner for Jeffrey, then, you know, that would obviously impact Rager's line for receiving yards. But if that scenario does happen, then the 700, taking the over on the 700 becomes more attractive, I think.
0: I'd I'd entirely agree. i entirely agree. All right, let's focus on the, the wide receivers that went over uh, rugs, which are, of course, the two wide receivers listed in the top echelon with him. Taken after him in the draft, though. are C.D. Lamb at 850, going to the Cowboys, and Jerry Judy, 900 yards. 900 freshman receiving
1: yards. That's
0: crazy. Which which one of those are you more interested in?
1: Um, It's hard to say, and both players are obviously incredibly talented, but I think what's... What's going to weigh their total receiving yardage numbers down this season is merely opportunity and target share because both players are entering situations where they're not going to be the number one receivers on their team. And that that's the opposite that that's the opposite of the situation that Ruggs is entering uh, with the Raiders, because in Dallas, CeeDee Lamb is going to be potentially the third wheel behind Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup. And it's entirely possible that you know he could end up supplanting both of those players on the depth chart. But even so, how much is Dak Prescott going to be airing the ball around to where CeeDee Lamb, as the number two or three receiver, can get over 850 receiving yards? And I'm saying this knowing that both Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup both had over 1,000 yards last season. But I just don't think there's room for a third receiver in that group to have that many receiving yards. And it's not an indictment of CeeDee Lamb's talent or skill set because if he was on if he was in the in a situation like Ruggs on the Raiders, then, you know, you would be viewing him as a as a prime candidate to even get more than like a thousand receiving yards. But you know, with the situation that he's entering in, in Dallas, I would lean towards the under on eight hundred and fifty receiving yards. And then with Jerry Judy, again, you know, The Broncos don't have the same talent at receiver that the Cowboys do. But at the same time, there's a little bit more unknown because, you know, Drew Locke, the Broncos are high on him to take a step forward in the second season. And then with Jerry Judy, you know, it's kind of, it's a similar situation. And although the Broncos don't have the same receiving talent that the Cowboys do, they do have a returning pro bowler in Cortland Sutton, who's coming off a very impressive season where he had over a thousand receiving yards and 72 receptions. And, you know, Judy's going to step in as the, as the prohibitive number two target. And I think him and Sutton will work really well together, but you know, with Drew at the helm, how many, how many targets are there going to be to go around to where Judy could have over 900 receiving yards? And they also drafted KJ Hamler um, a few rounds after Judy who you know, I presume will be playing a, a significant role in the passing game as well. So it seems like the Broncos are are leaning more towards spreading the ball around a lot, and they have two factors in the passing game at running back as well with Phillip Lindsay and Melvin Gordon. And they also have a talented tight end in Noah Fant who could take a step forward additionally. So you know, with both Judy and CD I would take the under on their receiving yardage totals. Um, I don't know how you feel, but I'm curious. Um, I definitely
0: understand where you're coming with both of them, and I think the Lamb one is a bigger argument to be made for the under because, like you said, Gallup and Amari Cooper were a thousand-yard receivers last year, and no matter what you do for your first six games, you're you're below them. Like as a rookie, that's that's just the the mental place you have to go into. Like uh, like Michael Jordan said in that first episode of The Last Dance, you got to be you got to know yeah. your place on the team to start the place to uh, be able to grow. And if Michael Jeffrey Jordan says so, we must listen. And for that, I think uh, C. D. Lamb is definitely an under there. But, you know, Judy's just my guy. And uh, 900 yards, I think, is entirely attainable for him on a Broncos offense. People forget Demarius Thomas just a few years ago thrived in his offense that essentially is still just to run the exact same offense, that high-passing West Coast that he had run when he was on the Broncos. So it's interesting to see how that fits in. But I think their number one wide receiver has always been the kind of guy that can be in a thousand yard receiver. And Jerry Judy, knowing how to be the number one guy at Alabama, knowing how to be the number one guy in high school, I think that this really attributes to him and his talent and IQ for the game and his ability to really transition. And I think that's going to be one of the reasons that makes him a candidate for 900 yards. I definitely see a thousand could be in the cards. Does not happen a lot, but Jerry Judy is that kind of talent. So uh, I'm definitely under on C.D. Lamb and liking the over on Jerry Judy.
1: Yeah, and one player you mentioned earlier was Justin Jefferson, who I somehow forgot to uh, to answer your question for, and you know his number is at 750, and I think this is, is a healthy over. I, I'm more confident in this being over, um, again, because of opportunity and target share, because Stefan Diggs is no longer with the Vikings, and that's 94 targets out of that offense that's gone, and over a thousand receiving yards. So there's a big vacuum there for a receiver to step up. And they didn't really add anyone else at the position in free agency nor in the draft. So Jefferson is gonna see a healthy target share from Kirk Cousins. Jefferson is primarily a more of a slot guy than like a big play threat, like a rugs or or a CD Lamb or Jalen Reger. But still, I think that pure volume alone is going to be enough to push him over the 750 number. I can see a stat line somewhere like maybe like 75 to 85 catches for the year and then around 800 receiving yards with, you know, a healthy dose of touchdowns mixed in. And this isn't, you know, necessarily to say that I think Jefferson is better than a player like CD or Judy, which I don't. But I think they ultimately could end up having similar numbers just because of the situation. ...situations that are into tier one.
0: Jefferson's situation is one that could not be beat, um, unless you're talking about his former LSU teammate, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who finds himself in the backfield of the NFL champions, Kansas City Chiefs. His numbers are probably one of the more interesting ones we have on our list today, and it's 950 scrimmage yards. So that is the combination of receiving and rushing yards. Uh, And as an incredibly talented runner and talented pass catcher, with Mahomes in the backfield you could see him used incredibly well. As we've seen in Damon Williams, the Chiefs know how to use that kind of talent, and I think Clyde edwards slair is perfectly suited for this offense. I think a great position. And for 950 yards, that over seemed kind of tempting for me. How do you feel about it, Frank?
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And admittedly, I, I didn't know all that much about Edwards-Slayer as a player entering the draft, but obviously as a dual-threat running back, you know, he brings a lot to the table. But if you look at someone like Williams last year, he had 711 scrimmage yards in 11 games. So if Williams had played all 16 games. I think he would have had over a thousand scrimmage yards easily. And, you know, no slight against Williams, but Edwards Hilaire might already be a better player in terms of pure talent and playing alongside Patrick Mahomes and Tyree kill and Travis Kelsey in Andy Reid's offense. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a gift for any running back, especially, you know, Andy Reid loves to use running backs that can make plays out of the backfield as a receiver. And I think Edwards Hilaire is just like a juiced up version of Damian Williams. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for him to make plays in his rookie year. And 950 scrimmage yards, that would be a lot if it was just pure rushing yards alone or pure receiving yards alone. But the fact that 950 would be a combined total, I mean, then you're only looking at 475 receiving yards and 475 rushing yards each and you know it doesn't have to be that number specifically but all in all i do like the over here
0: and like i mentioned i do too um though we're gonna have to compare him to a guy that is only going to be getting his rushing yards looked at here and that's going to be the number one uh, running back taken off the board after Clyde Edwards. Hilaire DeAndre Swift, uh, 625 rushing yards here for the Detroit Lions. I know we've both got a little help and hope that someone brings a little passion back to the Detroit Lions. Um, is Swift going to bring it at 650 yards?
1: I don't dislike Swift as a player at all. I think he's actually quite talented, but I didn't love this pick for the Lions, and maybe I'm a little bit higher on Carry On Johnson than most people, but I think that the presence of carry on Johnson is going to prevent Swift from, from hitting this number in his rookie year. And Swift is a player who like Edward to um, like we were talking about, he's a good receiver out of the backfield. And I think that's going to be his primary appeal, at least in year one for the lions because carry on Johnson is more of a between the tackles runner, kind of a downhill bruiser. And then the presence of Swift could give them a nice one-two punch. But Kerryon Johnson played eight games last year. He had 113 rushing attempts. So, I mean, if he plays – if he manages to play a full 16 games or somewhere close to it, he's going to have well over 200-plus carries. And I think that him – you know, Swift will obviously balance that number out. But 625 rushing yards is a pretty decent number. So I would be inclined to take the under on that total.
0: On the under, I'm actually kind of surprised here. I think I'm going to take the over. I think, as Johnson is a great running back, I'm just not entirely sold on him. I loved him in fantasy until he got hurt, uh, which really bummed his campaign, which he was doing great, 403 yards on 113 attempts, which isn't bad at all. But I just think that DeAndre Swift is built to be a three-bell cow, and he's going to run it loose, as the Lions like to do, you know, they still like to push that offense, and having a guy like Swift is an availability that I don't believe that they'll pass up. So I think that even though maybe in the first few games they'll let Johnson maybe control his domain as the starting running back, but I don't think he's the most talented runner they have. I don't even think he's in the realm that DeAndre Swift is, and therefore that's, I think Swift will jump in and easily be able to tote 650 yards. Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm sticking with the over here. Uh, surprised that you're taking the under. I.
1: Okay, well, you know, Rodan, we'll just have to to let bygones be bygones in this one and carry on to the next segment.
0: I hope we don't. I hope we go swift onto the next running back, uh, Jonathan Taylor. Now, he is going to be one of the more interesting running back situations. The former Wisconsin man now playing for the Colts is an interesting situation to look at as most of that backfield has a lot of question marks in it between quarterback, running back, what the starting wide receiver depth chart is going to look like, who's really playing tackle and who's playing center. There's a lot of confusion in Indianapolis here, and therefore that his number at 550 really does kind of show that that he might be splitting time with Marlon Mack and that he's definitely not going to be favored as the starter. So what do you think about a very fair 550?
1: Yeah, and it's just kind of a similar situation to what we were just talking about the Lions, because you have a returning starter um, who last year was the the prohibitive number one running back. But now that player in Detroit, it's carry on Johnson in Indianapolis. It's Marlon Mack. Now that player is going to see, you know, presumably see a fairly sizable cut in their workload. The difference is I think that Marlon Mack is better than carry on Johnson, but I also trust the Colts offense more. And I think that they're going to run the ball more successfully. And a big part of that is the offensive line and the Colts, you know, behind Quentin Nelson, the all-pro guard, and in a collection of a solid five-man group. They rightfully so have one of the best offensive lines in the league, not just in pass protection, but also in run blocking. And I think that the Colts really plan to use Marlon Mack and Jonathan Taylor as a one-two punch. And I think they have big plans for Taylor to get a lot of carries in his rookie year. They traded up more than a few spots to acquire him early in the second round. I think that Jonathan Taylor might be a better pure rusher than DeAndre Swift is, or maybe I just like him a little bit more as a player, but 550 isn't that big of a number considering the role that I think Taylor's going to have in year one. And I think he's going to get well over a hundred carries. And I think that there's enough volume in that, in that Colts offense for both him and Marlon Mack to have successful seasons um, in terms of statistical production.
0: I definitely agree. And I think the core of questioning this over-under is what you said is Marlon Mack. And I think Marlon Mack is better here and better suited for the Colts offense. He knows what's going on and has that playbook advantage. And here, I think while Taylor is a fantastic player. I don't think he's exactly the type that DeAndre Swift is, that three buck cow I mentioned. So I I think he will be cutting into the numbers and five fifty is a very generous number, but I think I would still stick with the under, looking at him maybe getting four hundred yards as Marlon Max still stays in the number one. But Jonathan Taylor, probably a fantasy darling if he can break out, that's probably a fifth round pick. So even not in the uh in the fantasy realm might be a good might be a good player to pick up.
1: Yeah, I mean, if for some reason Marlon Mack were to go down with injury, then I mean Jonathan Taylor would would go off like he his numbers could be crazy.
0: Could be, and the Badger uh, the Badger is incredibly talented, so I'll be looking forward to seeing him play. Uh, we have one final offensive odds here, and it's a simple one: a yes or no, an even, and a minus one forty. And it's will Jalen Hurts start a regular season game? Hurts the backup for Carson Wentz in Philadelphia. Wentz obviously has not played a full 16 game regular season since his rookie year. Um, famously, obviously, letting Nick Foles start many of the games, but now with Foles playing in Chicago after his stint in Jacksonville, it's interesting if Hurts will get that same opportunity that Foles once did. At minus 140, yes, I am so inclined to say, just take it. I mean, it's not a terrible bet. You're not going to make too much money, but Carson Wentz is so injury prone and that Eagles offensive line hasn't gotten any better. Only older. I I don't see a way in which, unless Wentz just has a little bit of luck, a little bit of a red luck in his hair. Um, I don't know. What do you think about your ginger friend?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I like Carson Wentz a lot as a player and I think that he's kind of gotten a bad rap in the media. And I think he's at this point, I actually think he's a little bit underrated, but when you bring up his injury history, I mean, that's totally correct. And it's unfortunate, but, and you can call them fluke injuries or whatnot, but he's definitely struggled to stay on the field to say the least. And even when he is healthy, it seems like he's always got some sort of nagging injury. He did manage to play all 16 games last year, but it wasn't a full healthy 16 games. He did have some back injuries going on throughout the season. And then we saw in the playoffs, you know, I mean, he suffered, the unfortunate concussion, which wasn't his fault at all. It was kind of just something that happened um, in the flow of a play. But still, I mean, Wentz is maybe not necessarily made of glass, but if you had to take a bet on if Jalen Hurts is going to start a game, he probably will because Wentz is – the safe bet here is just assuming that Wentz is going to miss at least one game, which he has for two out of the fourth seasons in his career. So. I mean, obviously, you're not wishing a player would ever get injured, but if you were to take this bet, um, Jalen Hurts likely to be a starter at some point during the season for a game.
0: I think I think that's uh that's one of the easier ones we take, and with that, we conclude our offensive portion. Um, and as promised to uh our viewers, you know, we listen, we hear, we hear all your feedback, and that's it. It's that time. Yeah, that's right. It's the Washington Redskins period. Frank, we're talking all about the Redskins. We're talking Chase Young over under eight point five sacks. That's right. Washington Redskins player Chase Young, their second overall pick. Get hype, Washington Redskins fans. We've said it now five times. Get off our back. Eight and a half sacks. What do you think about this for the young
1: men? Um, I like the over, and I think Chase Young is a is an incredibly talented player. Um, absolutely phenomenal talent. Uh, he has a tremendous skill set. Um, he's a great player. I mean, have I said enough? But. Yeah. I mean, just looking at recent history, you know, other players come out of Ohio state, Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, both those players had terrific rookie seasons in their own right. And they both run, they both won defensive rookie of the year. And Joey Bosa only had five and a half sacks, but he also missed a large portion of his rookie season. And if he had played 16 games or anywhere close to it, he would have had well over 8.5. And then Nick Bosa last year, had nine sacks. So I think that's probably where the eight and a half number is coming from. But I like that number uh, quite a bit. And I mean, I'd be surprised if he has less than that number. Um, I think somewhere between nine to 12 sacks is definitely in the cards uh, for Chase Young, who plays for the wonderful Washington Redskins.
0: The Washington Redskins, which we have absolutely no bias against, who, uh, in case you're also wondering, whose rookie sack record is actually 11. Brian Arakpo back in 2009, uh, I would go so far as to say that I would think Chase Young could easily break that. Um, while there's been a lot of hype for the Redskins off, uh, defensive line with Jonathan Allen from Alabama coming in um, last year and have, or two years ago, having a few injury problems. But now between him and Young, I think they have a very promising line that can get a lot of sacks. And Young's athleticism and talent really could get him around and. I, I Brian Arakpo, watch out! I don't definitely think that Chase Young will be breaking his record this year. It should be a great, uh, great time in old DC.
1: Uh, Brian Arakpo, former Washington Redskins.
0: Former Washington? Did you know Brian Arakpo used to play for the Washington Redskins?
1: He's one of the many outstanding players in a, such a storied franchise.
0: Such a storied franchise, man. No bias.
1: No bias anywhere on this podcast whatsoever.
0: None whatsoever though you know we do have to show our bias as we go uh back to detroit in the state of michigan so we can talk about jeffrey okuda the other most important defensive player out of this draft who has an over-under of three interceptions. Now, the only thing I would be concerned about with Jeff Okuda three would be that it's just kind of hard to predict interceptions. While Okuda is a very, very talented young man who can definitely get under the ball and would be in play for a lot of interceptions. He's going to slot in as the number one quarterback for a struggling Lions defense. I think if you are facing a lot of these quarterbacks, in the NFC North Kirk cousins, Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love, <laughs> the Bears guy, um, I guess um, whoever that may be, they'll probably not be targeting Okuda, who will cover a good amount of the field, and they'll probably just find to find whatever struggling man they manage to put at cornerback too. So, I think Okuda will be hard to see him get three interceptions, which overall is a big number for your rookie year. But yeah, I just think it's it's the defensive struggles will keep him under three. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with that analysis um, a lot actually. And like you said, interceptions are are hard to predict. I mean, and and it's not necessarily a measure of a great cornerback because, like you said, if you're really a true shutdown number one, then quarterback opposing quarterbacks aren't going to be throwing the ball in your direction a lot anyways. So simply based on a lack of opportunity, you might not have that many interceptions. So. Okuda could only finish the year with one or two interceptions to his name, but he could still end up having a good season. And I think that's probably the likely scenario. And I mean, if you're playing the Lions and you're an opposing quarterback, are you going to throw the ball Okuda's way? Or are you going to attack the oft injured and inconsistent Desmond Trufant or one of their backups like Justin Coleman or Daryl Roberts? And I mean, that's an easy answer. And a lot of the times with rookie defensive backs, they will be kind of picked on. But I don't think that's the case with a player like Okuda, who already has the talent to be a number one cornerback, and he has all the skills that uh, that will keep opposing quarterbacks wary of where he is on the field at all times. So I think we're in agreement on taking the under of three interceptions.
0: Yeah, uh, we've thrown quite a lot of numbers at you. Um, Frank, I got to ask you between all of the numbers we've looked at so far, which one are you leaning the most over and or under? You know,
1: that's a good question, Rodham. And you know, we've had some time to sit and take all these numbers and and there are quite a few numbers and numbers do in fact never lie. Between all these lines, I really like the Clyde Edwards Hilaire one of 950 scrimmage yards and to me that's just ultimately might end up being the safest bet because Again, just playing in that Chiefs offense, the volume's going to be there. He's not going to be the the primary focus or attention for opposing defenses. And they already have a solid running back in Damian Williams who he can work work in unison with. And I think that he really could be in store for an explosive rookie season. Um, 950 scrimmage yards is not that great of a number, um, given all the things I just laid out. So out of all the bets, I think that is the one. I'm taking the over for Clyde Edwards-Hilaire to surpass 950 scrimmage yards. That is probably my favorite.
0: Uh, that's definitely a good one, one I would be leading far over on. But I think one my favorite one, I think I'm going to have to swing back here, back to Chase Young. I just definitely think uh, on that defensive line. And, you know, this is not a continuation of the Washington Redskins period, but... Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Chase Young, Ryan Kerrigan, Montez Sweat. That's just a fantastic defensive line with Reuben Foster behind them and Thomas Davis, who, while is getting up there in years, is a very talented man. Uh, their run defense is insane. Not much can be said for their pass defense, but that's all right. And so I think Chase Young will have a lot of opportunity to kind of draw quarterbacks out of the pocket and take them down, a lot like he did in the Big Ten. He's a guy that can control the pocket on defense, which is crazy. It's not a talent that many Uh, players come into the league already having. It's something that Jared Allen has always talked about as being one of his uh, biggest strengths. And I think when a guy like Chase Young comes into the league already knowing how to control, like Hall of Famer all-time, one of the all-time sack leaders, Jared Allen, rodeo Jared Allen, I'm looking forward to it. This man's going to have a great career, and uh, it's all going to start in this rookie year with, I'm saying, over 10 sacks and far over 8.5. So yeah, I'm looking forward to Chase Young and the Washington Redskins. Mark it down. Book it. Make sure, because when you win all that money, you're going to want to remember. Um, but we do have some actually specific odds. That's right, we've just been throwing random numbers over you, but we finally have minuses and pluses to show you. Obviously, uh, one of the running backs and the wide receivers one was super, super interesting, but in the end of the day, this is a quarterback's league, and uh, it's a quarterback's world, and we only just live in it. And specifically this year, it was Joe Burrow's world that we're all just living in, who now plays for the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, We'll be talking about is over-under 27, well, I guess just as over 27 uh, touchdowns, or 24 touchdowns are feeling a little bit less risky, with 24 at minus 130, 27 at plus
1: 150. Frank, what do you think about these numbers? Um, I think they're fair, given how talented Burrow is and the insane statistical production that he put up at LSU l- last year, and I think. You know, compared to a lot of quarterbacks that have come out in the draft recently, I think he's well prepared, and I think he's, I think he's very much NFL ready. Um, at the same time, it's very difficult to forecast how good a rookie quarterback is going to do in their first season. And playing in the Bengals offense could either be a blessing in disguise, or it could be a curse for Joe Burrow. Um, they do have a solid supporting cast, but at the same time, there's some legitimate questions related to their offensive line and they are supposed to be getting Jonah Williams back who was their first round pick last year, but he missed the entirety of last season with the torn ACL. So getting him back in the fold will definitely help Burrow. But at the same time, I mean their offensive line as a whole is not that great and their defense is also not that great either. And I think that's going to work against Joe Burrow at the same time. Um, 24 passing touchdowns. Minus 130 is the only thing that's preventing me from taking the over here. I I think more so somewhere between 20 to 24 is probably uh, in the range that you'd be looking for there.
0: Yeah, and I definitely agree with you. And while that offensive line is one of the things that would hold him back, I think specifically his weak arsenal um, is what's going to fully hold him back. I think if you go down any NFL roster, you could easily find players like Tyler Boyd, Joe Mixon, AJ Green, guys with talent, but... If these are the starting weapons that he has, not to mention any lack of a tight end on this team, I think CJ. CJ.
1: Mr. CJ Usama.
0: Mr. CJ Usama is their starting tight end, which his LSU Tigers probably had a better had a better receiving cast, and it's incredible, you know? While I, I'm not disrespecting AJ Green at all, he will be 32 at the start of the next season, and his speed and talent really starting to degrade. You can definitely see that last year. Tyler Boyd, who lines up across from him, had it wasn't a thousand yard receiver last year but i still don't buy it i think he had 11.6 yards per catch and his big play production was definitely great you can see that every few games his consistency was just not good enough for a player of um burrow's talent to be able to get that many touchdowns and yards at all um and t higgins is i guess his final weapon and that's You're asking a player to fully adjust into the league and be able to be a considerable weapon for Joe Burrow, and otherwise he really has no one to pass to. I don't think T. Higgins is going to be able to develop that well uh, that early. I don't think Tyler Boyd is consistent enough to play well, and as much as I love A.J. Green and hope him the best at 32, I just don't think he has that kind of weaponry. And In the end, Joe Burrow doesn't really have the power to get down the field and get 27 here. I agree with you 20 to 24 is definitely your range and I'm sticking on the under on both of these.
1: Yeah. And you know, that's, that's not an indictment of Joe Burrow at all. I mean, having somewhere between having 20 plus passing touchdowns in his rookie season would be, you know, a pretty impressive feat in and of itself, but still for betting purposes. I mean, you have to examine, you know, like we mentioned the offensive line, the supporting cast, and I'm also really not all that sold on Zach Taylor as a head coach yet it's unfair to call him a bad coach because he's only in, he's only been head coach for one year and he doesn't have that much experience, but I'm not so sure, you know, how good is he going to be able to develop Joe Burrow right away? And, you know, what's that connection going to be like? And, you know, all the things that we mentioned, there's just too many question marks for me at least. Um, to feel confident taking the over on these numbers.
0: I agree. I entirely agree. And uh, we'll stop shitting on the Bengals real quick. Um, uh, we'll move down with Tua at 20 and 27 rather than 24 and 27. If you are interested, the 27 is coming from the rookie single season touchdown record. Uh, I personally think Tua has no chance at it because it's passing touchdowns only. If he were to be able to throw rushing touchdowns, I think it'd be a questionable mix. But uh, we'll start really pretty much with that 20 passing touchdowns. Do you think Tua could beat that? um in Miami
1: uh if Tua were to play in the entirety of the NFL season and he was going to start from week one and you were guaranteed that he was going to play every game then yeah I might feel comfortable taking the over on 20 touchdowns I mean he threw his touchdown rate at Alabama was insane and but again health has always been the thing holding him back and for me I mean we talked about some of the risk related to Joe Burrow which isn't health related, it's more so just supporting cast and situation. Miami's supporting cast is worse than the Bengals. And at the same time, there's no there's no way you can be overly confident that Tua is going to either start week one, and if he does start, that he's gonna be able to hold up for the majority of the season. And, you know, given that, it's just way too risky to take the over on his passing touchdowns or even his passing yardage, which I know you didn't mention, but for me, it's just Tua is obviously an incredibly talented player, and but there's just no guarantee that he's going to play enough. And uh, for that reason, you know, I think taking the under here is a safer bet, even more so safer than than what we were talking about with uh, with Joe Burrow.
0: Yeah, I agree. And Tua to not being able to start every game is definitely what concerns me. With the possibility of the injury entirely plausible, keeping him out for the first few games, um, and. Fitzmagic still in the works. I just don't think Tua starts all sixteen games, and that really limits him from twenty passing touchdowns. I think if he would play all sixteen games, I think he would definitely be able to breach that twenty, maybe get in the 22-24 range. Um, but I don't think without all sixteen games, without the entire time to develop to develop a rapport with those wide receivers, who, as you mentioned, aren't all that talented. I I just don't I don't see a way in which they can handle this for Tua. Um, you did mention passing yards. Tua's number at three thousand three hundred, with a pretty pleasing minus one thirty, and um, Burrow with his three thousand seven hundred, at also minus one thirty. Which of these two are you more interested in? We've already talked about how they're both probably not going to reach their passing touchdown
1: numbers. Do you think they'll reach their passing yard numbers? I mean, again, it's it's the it's a similar conversation, especially with Tua. Thirty-three hundred is is not necessarily a tremendous number that he would need to hit, but I think it would require at least playing four fourteen game fourteen to fifteen games at least, for him to get anywhere close to thirty-three hundred. And I just don't think that's in the cards uh, for him. You know, in the future, I definitely think twenty touchdowns, thirty-three hundreds for passing yards for Tua is going to be more than attainable, and I think that can easily become a regular occurrence. But for the purposes of this discussion. In his rookie season, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable taking the over at thirty three hundred, especially at minus one thirty. That's just not a great bang for your buck. And on the flip side, Joe Burrow at thirty seven hundred. Again, not overly confident in that number, but compared to Tua, I think it's definitely more feasible for Burrow to hit the over on his passing yards. Thirty seven hundred is a is a pretty hefty number, but I do think that. You know, I do think that Zach Taylor and the Bengals are kind of give. I do think that Zach Taylor and the Bengals are going to give Joe Burrow a decent amount of freedom and flexibility in year one to kind of air the ball out, and I think that he's going to have command of the offense. But you know, thirty seven hundred again—that's that's a decent number, and at minus one thirty, not the greatest bet in the world. But if you were deciding between Burrow and two, I think Burrow is the safer option between the two.
0: I'm actually kind of surprised to hear you say that you're not going to take the 3,700. So I'm definitely with you. I think Tua is kind of one that you wipe away because the questionability of how many games he plays really is just makes it hard to bet on anything, but maybe could get you some good odds. But with Burrow, a lock to play, uh, well, with Burrow, an essential lock to start uh, any game he isn't hurt for, I think 3,700 is entirely attainable. He has the talent to get receivers down the field. I just don't know if his receivers have the talent to get into the end zone. Um, and that that's my biggest concern. I think he'll be able to pick uh, to pull up 3,700 yards. Um, I just don't know if he can beat it by that much. He's, he's definitely not a guy that can throw for 4,000 yards yet, but, you know, a little bit less definitely seems plausible. I'm not too happy taking a minus 130, but I'll do it because it seems very likely to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh on him, and I don't want to see him light up our Baltimore Ravens twice a year in the AFC North. And, I mean, if you took, 300, if you took the number of 3,700 yards and assume that he played 16 games, he would need somewhere around 230 passing yards a game. And I do think... That's definitely in the cards. It definitely could happen, but if it was, if the odds were even, I would feel more comfortable taking it. But because it's minus one thirty, and I do think that there's a decent chance it could hit the under, it's just not something that, personally, it's not a bet that I would be overly excited about. But I definitely see where you're coming from.
0: Yeah, it should be an exciting time to see how Joe Burrow and Tua turn out, and the entirety of this rookie class—a fantastic set of players. Um, really excited for them, especially Chase Young of the Washington Redskins, who we talked about for a solid amount of this podcast. Exciting for our listeners. You, um,
1: you know, Rodham, and- I'm curious. We've, we've spent a lot of time over the past two weeks talking about all these different rookies. I mean, for me, I can't remember being this excited about a rookie class in quite some time. I mean, there's just so many different storylines to uh, to be watching this season. And I mean, what do you think?
0: yeah, no, I've have not been excited about a draft class this for this much, and it's probably just because of quarantine where we're just looking at these players' names over and over again. I cannot tell you how many times I've ch- seen Jeff Okuda's highlights at this point. Um, but I've seen him quite a many times, and I'm excited to see him on the field, not to mention Jerry Judy in every single wide receiver touchdown. T. Higgins is one that I cannot stop mentioning. i have just watched his t- his highlights are insane. He scores a touchdown, one in six catches. That guy was
1: crazy in college. And yet we still can't say Tua's last name. But that's all right, because we'll get there one day. One day you'll hear us just say it beautifully. I,
0: I will say Tua, and then after that, the rest of his last name will come out. And it'll be sound perfect.
1: Yep, it's going to happen one day, and it's going to be glorious.
0: And when you want to hear that from us one day, keep listening to our podcast and listening to, out for our newest information from our Twitter and our Instagram at Play it Pod. Frank, if they want to hear you say Tua's last name with beauty and Hawaiian grace, where can they find you?
1: Uh, you can find me at FrankJP0, but uh, don't necessarily be expecting the Hawaiian grace of uh, me saying his last name. You can't expect
0: it from me either. Where well, You can find me at Rotem Kaufman, but... You might hear it one day on this podcast. One day. And with that, we bid you a farewell. We bid you farewell. Rest in peace, Roger Butler. Wash your nasty hands. <laughs>